Hi, and welcome back to our third episode. So far in this series, we've talked about automation in different countries and the platform economy. One of the most important changes in the world of work, though, has been to the way that people are managed. That is, in an increasing number of workplaces, employees are heavily monitored in their work, and this data can then be fed back into algorithms, which then do the job of monitoring and managing them. It's a complex issue which raises questions about privacy, labour law and the politics of regulation. And these are the questions we get into in this episode. We talk to researchers Antonio Aloisi and Valerio De Stefano about their book, Your Boss is an Algorithm. Two things before we get started. Firstly, if you're a regular listener to the show, you'll have noticed we've had a facelift with a new name and logo. I hope you like it, and thanks to longtime friend of the show, Garcia de Relion, who was the brains behind it. Secondly, in this episode, the sound quality is not as good as I would like, and I apologize for that. But stick with it, because it answers a lot of the questions I had for creating this series in the first place, and I think it's really, really insightful. Without further ado, on with the show. Hi, Antonio and Valeria. Thanks so much for joining us. Could you just start by introducing yourselves and telling us about your work? Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm Antonio. At the moment, I am a Marie Curie Fellow and Assistant Professor at I Law School, I University in Madrid. And I'm currently working on a project whose title is Boss Ex Machina. And the idea is to map and understand the digital transformation of managerial prerogatives in workplaces that are data-driven, that are governed by AI and algorithms. I wrote my doctoral dissertation on the platform economy, the legal implication of this new business model. And I've been always interested at the uh, intersection between modern technologies and their impacts on social institutions. I've been working together uh, with Valerio for a long time, and we are also looking forward to the publication of our book, whose title is Your Boss is an Algorithm. And uh, I am Valerio De Stefano. I'm a Canada Research Chair in Innovation Law and Society and Law Professor at Osgood Hall School in Toronto, Canada where I do research on artificial intelligence and the world of work, both in platform work, but beyond platform work uh, mostly. So I, I, I do research on the intersection of labor and technology uh, at large. And, and yes, I'm also very thrilled to be uh, here discussing with you these topics. Perfect. So a couple of years ago, the discussion around digital technology and work was all about this concern that automation was going to lead to mass job losses and that human work was going to be obsolete. But less and less people think that's true. And your book argues that instead what's happening is that digital tools are replacing managerial roles and kind of changing organizational processes rather than just displacing most of the jobs. Antonio, could you start by just explaining that in a bit more detail for us? Yes, actually, we wanted to write a book on the future of work, but at the same time, we realized that uh, there was a rather pervasive narrative on a potential future without work. And we decided to look at the data, at the numbers, to understand whether this rhetoric was accurate, was appropriate. 
then we uh, realize that, of course, there are some technologies that can reduce the human contribution, can make humans obsolete, but job-killing innovation is not here. Uh, if we rely on data that have been prov provided by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, for instance, we can easily understand that contrary to cataclysmic predictions, only 9% of the currently existing jobs could be potentially automated. There are some intrinsic limits to automation that are particularly significant and relevant from a social perspective. And we would like to focus on this approach by looking at the motivation behind the limits to the human automation of currently existing jobs. The first limit is the difficulty to code, to teach AI algorithms and robots to complete some activities that are within the domain of uh, activities where the human factor is prevalent because it involves critical reasoning, but also dexterity. Some activities cannot be simply taught to digital tools and devices. But there is another more worryingly uh, problem that is representing today a limit to a wide trend towards the automation of jobs, that is the large availability of poorly paid jobs. In many cases, automation is not economically viable. In some cases, it is not technically feasible, but more often than not, the large availability of these very badly organized and negotiated jobs make innovation not convenient. And this is the main reason why we are witnessing the emergence of many uh, bad jobs instead of having them automated away. This is uh, particularly uh, troubling from a social perspective. And after basically trying to introduce this kind of qualitative analysis on the uh, current labor market instead of merely relying on data and spreadsheets, we uh, also attempt in our books to look at a specific area where automation is currently happening. And we claim that many decisional tasks Many managerial tasks at the workplace level are currently being automated. They are allocated to automated decision-making systems. So it's not the automation of work per se, because there are many current limits to this, but we claim that managerial functions can easily entrust it on tools and devices that are fueled by a widely available computational power. So managers could be easily uh, replaced or at least complemented. And this is the core of our research project at the moment. We are trying to discuss, but also to explore and expose 
the automation of managerial function and also what we call the augmentation of these powers that have been traditionally uh, conferred on employers and that are now somehow expanded in their reach, in their scope, thus limiting and upsetting the countervailing forces that have been designed to tame a frankly different form of power, which was more discreet, more human, and more detectable. This is the uh, current focus of our research, and this is why we discuss about the augmentation of power rather than the automation of jobs. Um, And just to clarify on that, when you say in terms of bad jobs, so and is the idea there that it's it's not profitable enough to automate them, so they just create bad jobs instead? Yes. I mean, if we look at the so-called environment of innovation, we see and we witness the creation of jobs that are basically transforming humans into associates or substitutes for robots. And this is a very worrisome limit to a broader process of innovation. Now, uh, we end up adding humans, fixing robots, operating as uh, people working in the maintenance sector, precisely because it's easier to invest in humans that are very poorly paid rather than buying robots or re-engineering the production system or trying to improve the ways in which some things have been always done at the workplace level. So this kind of pressure on the value and availability of jobs can be used as an explanation for the very scarce propensity to innovate in many countries, including in the European ones. That was really clear. And I'd not thought about the economic reasons preventing automation. So the availability of cheap labor and poor job qualities, because it makes a lot of sense that the more workers are paid, the better their working conditions, the more holiday they get, the more easily they can unionize, the higher incentive there is to automate their work, which implies that if their work clearly could be automated, but isn't, that's probably because there isn't much financial incentive to automate their work because of the cost of doing so. And that's because they're poorly paid. They maybe have bad conditions, etc. So then, I mean, we're, we're talking kind of very broadly about this gig economy model when we talk about some types of bad jobs. Valerio, do you see that emerging as a kind of new organizational paradigm across across all sectors, across most sectors? Well, it depends from what uh, we define as as gig economy, because the gig economy, uh, initially we started to use in it to define, to design people working for platforms, right? So digital labor platforms such as Uber or the Amazon Mechanical Turk or Deliveroo. And then this label gig economy moved to basically uh, define any casual job. Now, uh, casual work has been a long-standing feature of uh, our economies. Uh, first of all, uh, it was the, the traditional model before the 20th century. Then during the 20th century, we saw uh, with unionization and, uh, and better regulation and governance of the labor market, employment contracts becoming more stable, employment relationships becoming longer in time, more stable for workers. 
but then in the last 40 years, uh, this process has reversed uh, due to, again, uh, weakening of labor unions and also uh, deregulation patterns throughout the industrialized world. So we have seen a precarization, a casualization of work uh, that long predates the emergence of platforms such as Uber or, or Deliveroo. Uh, what these platforms have added to the mix is the use of technology to uh, keep people as precarious as possible while at the same time uh, allowing firms to organize their work efficiently without the need to resort to long and stable employment relationship that comes with costs for, uh, for platforms and businesses that, of course, correspond to basic fundamental rights uh, for workers. The risk is that this model, the combination of technology and, and power uh, in the hands of uh, businesses, uh, will extend and is extending beyond, again, uh, ride hailing or food delivery or uh, online microtasking. We already see that it's extending beyond that, and this will drive a further casualization of, uh, of the of labor market which will add to the increasing precarization that we've seen in the last 40 years. So it's, it's useful to understand why people talk about the gig economy. And actually, the gig economy per se is a label we don't like very much because it uh, basically incorporates a narrative that uh, basically says that all these jobs should be gigs, all these jobs should be precarious, and you should not expect to have any stability any meaningful labor rights because at the end of the day these are only gigs and people associate gigs with things that students do with uh, people that people that want to moonlight do that they just want to earn some extra money what we know about the platform economy what we know about precarious and casual jobs is that uh, they are in many cases dramatically the main or sole source of income of the workers that are involved in these jobs. So uh, this is why also we try to uh, move away from uh, the label gig economy because we think it incorporates a toxic narrative that should be actually uh, fought against. So you've got one chapter called The Digital is Political, Adopting a Human in Command Approach. And I'd be interested to hear both of your thoughts on this in terms of the politics of this and human in command. So, I mean, as, as, a, as a simplification, but a roughly accurate one, you can think of politics as being split between the left, which sees corporations as the threat to freedom and society to which the government, government regulation is the solution. And the opposite of true, is true of the right. They see the government as the threat and corporations are that solution. So I just wondered... Kind of you, you've talked about this this human in command approach in your book. What do you mean by a human in command approach, and do you think it can overcome this this political divide? Yeah, I'm not that sure that this political divide is still relevant, at least in the field of regulating modern technologies, but I will say something more about this in a moment. When it comes to our proposal to basically exercise a human leadership in the regulation of technology, we uh, basically attempt to demystify a current mainstream approach towards technology, which is particularly techno-deterministic, 
it is based on a sense of inevitability. Technology is here to bring progress in our boring world. So every attempt to regulate it is a way of killing innovation in the cradle. We, on the contrary, claim that uh, modern technologies uh, and their adoption are not taking place in an institutional, political, socio-economic and cultural vacuum. They are clearly embedded and ingrained in a system of values. And these values should shape our approach and should also inform the way in which we treat them. There have always been rules on how to prevent mass dismissals and layoffs, on how to uh, regulate the collection, the use and the uh, processing of data at the workplace, but also in society at large. So we move from this perspective and we try to offer some kind of pragmatic uh, solutions, measures and provisions by interrogating the uh, suitability and the uh, flexibility of current rules that are not per se obsolete. When it comes to to the traditional divide, there is something that is somehow blurring these uh, traditional uh, visions of the market, technology and the economy, precisely because if we simply look and saw at some purportedly innovators, such as those um, startups that are offering new services in the field of the so-called platform economy, we should admit that one of the main sources of their competitive advantage is precisely the lack of compliance with existing rules. And this is a problem also if we adopt, let's say, a market-oriented approach. The main source of this advantage is basically a model based on unfair competition towards other players and competitors that are playing by the rules. I don't know if this is a left-wing or right-wing reading of the problem, but I'm uh, pretty sure that uh, this is not a way to favor workers or existing rules of the uh, market. To conclude on this, we uh, try to advocate that there is room for human leadership and there is also an urgent need to basically use existing rules in order to avoid that technology favor only the uh, very few rather than the many. Yes, and I, and I would add on that, that I, I actually fail to see how... Uh, anyone would consider corporation a bastion of freedom against the government or or, or anyone. Corporations uh, are basically private entities and they are nexus of wealth and power that is exerted on on workers. So there's nothing wrong with uh, the idea of of a corporation, but uh, at the same time, we should always remember that our legal systems acknowledges to employers and managers extremely wide and pervasive powers on their workers. Uh, The powers to direct the work, the power to control the work, the power to discipline them, 
And um, label the, 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 the thing that labor law does is try to counter these huge powers uh, with measures that try to limit the exercise of, of these powers uh, in, many, in many ways. But we always have to start from the idea that uh, unless we have labor and employment laws and unless these labor and employment laws are effectively enforced, uh, people are at the mercy of their employers and managers. So uh, we should start to move away from the idea that the corporation represents uh, a place for freedom. In many cases, workplaces, offices are places in which people stop being citizens for eight or 10 hours per day and are subject to other private parties' authority. And this is something that we have to always keep in mind, particularly because technology at the moment uh, augments uh, these powers. It puts them on steroids. Uh, new technologies allow um, managers to direct people uh, remotely, control them, whatever they're doing through with GPS or by taking screenshots of their computers or counting keystrokes. Uh, some technologies aim at monitoring the mental and emotional state of workers. And then people get also disciplined if they don't conform to the metrics of, of, of these systems. This is something that, in our opinion, should be much better governed. And in some cases, uh, it is not just about putting a human in the loop that validates the discussion and the decision of uh, automated decision systems and algorithms. It's basically questioning the right to use these systems per se. We, for instance, think that any surveillance that is exerted on emotional and mental state should be outright banned. It should not be allowed. Uh, we think that many systems that impose excessive workloads or excessive workplaces should be rediscussed, should be rediscussed also uh, collectively, so this also means uh, human in command. It's not only just it's not just about putting someone that, in a way or another, says yes to the to the decision of an algorithm. It's also making sure that technology is at the service of humans rather than the other way around. And technology is a proxy again for power and wealth in in many of these cases. So we should not also use technology as a smokescreen to hide the fact that there is this power in society and that this power uh, is a danger for democracy. Thank you, both of you. That was really clear. So we're going to go on to talk about the, the legal framework that you would like to see put in place, kind of based on this principle of human in command. And obviously, the, the first question we have to ask is, what is the aim of this legal framework? And you've said that kind of the, the aim of the legal framework is to protect workers, but avoid blocking innovation. I just wonder why innovation is is like a really important part of that, because I think obviously innovation to lots of people is important in general. But when we talk about innovation in the labor market, the innovations we've seen so far seem to just be things like the gig economy, quote unquote, which are actually just ways to make workers share more of the risks and to decrease working conditions. So what, why do you think innovation is so important? 
Yeah, of course, innovation is not a value, is not a purpose per se. At the same time, in the very introduction of our book, we argue that authentic innovation is lagging behind in many cases. And what we are seeing is a very misconceived notion of innovation that is based on the idea that this kind of, let's say, startups should ask forgiveness rather than permission and that they should have like a trump card to avoid this boring compliance with rules. At the same time, we stick to the very original idea of technology and innovation, including tools that can be introduced at the workplace. And as Valerio was saying before, we claim that technology should emancipate workers. There is a neglected side of the story. Innovation is much welcome when it is used as a tool to free energies. The workplace is a place of struggle, is a place where some freedoms are somehow reduced, uh, some activities are uh, dangerous, uh, hazardous, they can be also repetitive, manual, and here some tools can be easily implemented or developed, employed to expand the room for uh, freedom, emancipation, self-determination and agency. We would like to stick to this original value of technology and innovation as a place for freedom, which is currently denied in many contexts precisely because we have had the very idea of innovation weaponized to uh, basically allow for the uh, widespread adoptions of uh, misconceived and very uh, controversial version of technology. But now, when we discuss about the legal framework, we are also aware that there are many tools in the existing legal arsenal in terms of labor laws, but also uh, tools coming from the collective negotiation between social partners, between representatives of labor and management, that can easily promote new flexible environments including in the social field. So uh, we try in several sections of our book to discuss how labor laws and collective agreements are extremely adaptable and flexible tools, and they are also conceived as organizational devices. They are not only protective tools that are expected to rebalance this asymmetry of contractual power and information in professional relationship between employing entities and, the, and workers. On the contrary, uh, if we look at the uh, history of capitalism, the very emergence of the modern firm, the vertically integrated firm can be read in conjunction with the uh, design and deployment of legal tools that have supported the emergence of this type of firm. As discussed before, the idea that the employer can exercise authority is a stunningly efficient 
efficient system to run the business effectively. This should not be overlooked. And in particular, we also argue that after looking at the most serious and nefarious consequences of the pandemic, we have all learned how some important legal um, elements and devices, such as short-time schemes, paid sick leave, occupational health and safety, but also the regulation of working time, the flexibility afforded by some tools, uh, contractual tools, such as remote working, have offered concrete solutions to allow business continuity, to uh, decongest our cities in the most critical moment of the pandemic, and also to keep people safe. So it's a categorical error to claim that the legal framework cannot offer some concrete responses to the genuine need and preferences for flexibility, innovation, and competitiveness. Yes, I would like to add this to stress that innovation, again, can be something fantastic. No one is against it. The point is the kind of innovation we are seeing in our labor markets today is not the innovation that is useful to liberate energies, to uh, foster creativity, to make our work safer, uh, to make our work more interesting. The kind of innovation that we see everywhere is basically aimed at micromanaging people, accounting how many times they go to the bathroom, accounting how many keystrokes they give to uh, a keyboard, uh, how many hours they spend in front of a computer, a screen, a camera, or how fast they move in a warehouse. This is not the innovation that we want. This is not positive innovation. This is basically transforming our workplaces in Tayloristic nightmares and making the, the dreams of uh, scientific management of the early 20th century come true. Uh, those dreams uh, were not uh, feasible because it was impossible to have a supervisor that monitor a single worker all of the time. Technology now allows people to be monitored 24-7. And this is something that Apart from everything, apart um, from the sheer invasion of privacy, increase in occupational health and safety risks and hazards, uh, risk of discrimination, also towards, uh, also towards productivity. It's not good for anyone. And sometimes the idea is that since these technologies are there and are available, we should use them and we should, uh, we should allow the managers to implement them. And this is what we want to basically counter with a book. It is not just because a technology is available that the use should be allowed on the workplace. On the contrary, every technology must be scrutinized before implementation. Uh, the technologies that affect people, that control people, that are used to discipline people should come with huge scrutiny uh, as if it was a sort of due process of law because they impact on people's fundamental rights. And this is something that uh, it's, we find completely missing from the debate, and we want to add this dimension to the debate. Just very briefly on this idea of innovation being used to emancipate workers, are there, have we already seen examples of this kind of historically? 
Well, again, in a way or another, technology has been used to make work less dangerous and uh, basically less hard. If you think of any mechanization, it comes in many cases with job displacement, but also makes the jobs uh, that remain lighter than basically doing something without the machine. If you think uh, anything from cross construction to mining to, I don't know, factory work. Of course, doing things with your hand is uh, easier for you than doing them through a machine. Uh, Some of the jobs get displaced, but it's undeniable that the jobs that remain are lighter than the the ones that were displaced. This is not what we're seeing now. Um, Traditionally, technologies are intervened on things. These technologies intervene on people. So this is the crucial difference. This is something that is not evident enough in the debate. And we should not use the same legal framework, but also the same mental framework to basically conflate technologies that in the past have made things more under our control from the technology of today that makes human more under the control of managers and corporations. These are completely different uh, patterns of innovation and they should not be treated equally. Thank you. That was a really good explanation. And that leads me nicely onto my final question, which is kind of a very broad question. What you've argued for is what you call a future-proof labour law. Could you explain to us, firstly, what exactly that looks like, but also importantly, how you think that could be brought about? Yeah, we use the uh, phrase future-proof precisely because we want to advocate and to uh, basically offer an opportunity to assess the importance, the flexibility of current rules that can be updated, adapted, but yes, they are very suitable to accommodate new flexible environments. So when it comes to the proposals that we formulate in the conclusion of our book, Your Boss is an Algorithm, we basically try to reconstruct a fabric of consistency between the new business models and the available rules. First of all, we try to be very pragmatic. After many years of strategic litigation of important reforms at the lawmaking level, we are starting to realize that we have a problem with some components of this rhetoric about technology and innovation, and we are left to fix some problems, some negative externalities that are basically brought about by these disruptors, by these uh, tech giants. We try to explain how the contract of employment can serve the needs of modern business model precisely because it both authorizes the exercise of power and then it regulated it, it made it compliant with the constitution and with the general rules of a liberal democracy. And we also zoom in on the importance of collective agreements that are currently proving to be 
quite adaptive because they offer a platform for co-negotiation of the adoption of technology at the workplace level. This is the standard in many European jurisdictions. We are also trying to explain how the co-design of managerial practices or automated practices at the workplace level is very beneficial for both workers and companies, not only because it reduces the legal uncertainty and makes companies less vulnerable and exposed from a legal risk perspective, but also because very often when it comes to people analytics, algorithm management, companies are renting tools from third-party providers that fail to measure what is relevant at the workplace level. So the metrics that are adopted to fuel algorithm management tools are very erratic and erroneous. On the contrary, by putting people, workers and their representatives at the table where decisions are taken, companies can have the possibility to foster an environment of trust, of positive collaboration, rather than relying on FaceTime, micromanagement and very antiquated managerial uh, cultural tools. On the other side, we also uh, delve into the importance of data protection tools, such as the General Data Protection Regulation, which is a promising uh, legal solution, even if it is a bit underused, for instance, when it comes to the uh, data protection impact assessment, that is an anticipatory and participatory tool that can offer the opportunity to identify the risks in terms of negative impact on rights, freedom and interest and also to mitigate them by adopting a collective, a mutualistic perspective. We also look at the important rules coming from anti-discrimination that are offering a first line of defense when technologies are adopted to hire workers to promote them or to fight them. And thanks to the uh, recent successes in the field of strategic litigation, we are starting to learn how very uh, old rules can be somehow interpreted in a modern way. On top of this, we also follow the most recent developments, for instance, the uh, proposed European Union Directive on improving working conditions in the platform economy. We try to mention the potential shortcomings, the loopholes, but basically we also offer an opportunity to use these new tools to fix, to repair some current problems, for instance, the issue of misclassification of many workers, not only in the gig economy, in the platform economy, but more broadly in many supply chain where workers are outsourced or hired by means of subcontracting schemes. And we also look at the rules that can be read in conjunction to make algorithmic tools accountable and reportable at the workplace level. As said before, they can solve some problems, they can increase productivity, solve some administrative bottlenecks, but it is crucial that uh, rule-based provisions that are expected to ensure a due process are also implemented at the workplace level. Yeah, I, I can only add this. In the last few years, we have been basically uh, sort of 
overrun by a narrative that says that uh, any labor regulation and protection uh, should have been redesigned and built around tech companies and their business needs. Uh, what we argue in the book is that uh, existing labor regulation and uh, protection, uh, they might be updated if needed, but basically they respond and protect basic and fundamental rights of people, uh, the right to uh, an income that is uh, stable and certain and a, uh, and a form of work that is decent and it pays off the right to a reasonable and predictable working time, the right not to be discriminated against, the right to express your own voice at the workplace. Those fundamental rights and the grounds and needs that brought to the recognition of these fundamental rights haven't changed. Uh, people will always need a stable and reliable income. People will want to accept voice at the workplace. People must not be discriminated against. We cannot rebuild these rights to, to accommodate technology and innovation. It is technology and innovation that should be built around to serve people. Technology should serve humans, not the other way around. This is basically the blueprint for any foolproof labor law. And doing the other way around is just going back to the dark days of early industrialization when people worked um, 15 hours per day or didn't work at all, didn't get any protection. Technology can be used, again, to make our work safer, less menial, um, less dangerous. But this will not happen just by chance or by operation of a miracle. This will happen if we basically channel technology to the service of society at large. And this is the challenge that labor law and labor regulators have for the going forward. Thanks for listening. And it would really help us out if you could share this episode on social media or with anyone who might be interested. Or leave us a review on whichever platform you're listening to this. See you next time.